0: 以она放在 89... 你的意思是怎樣endo configuration Uh, recently watched a BBC documentary entitled The Jungle. Not to be confused with Disney's Jungle Cruise, completely different movies. This one was narrated by David Attenborough who looks nothing like The Rock, okay? Just just so you know. Uh, But we get to see in this documentary the amazing way that vegetation regenerates in some of the deepest, darkest jungles on the planet. Through the the, uh, time-lapse photography, we get to see a little bit about what happens when one hardwood tree falls in a dense, thick, populated area of the jungle. Immediately, plant life rushes toward this sunlight because normally what happens is there's so much covering that the sunlight never makes it to the floor of the jungle. So all these plants kind of rush for a quick, immediate growth. You have these broadleaf vines that kind of twist their way up and start making their way toward the sun. There's also these thin trees that also start popping up. But next to the hardwood trees around them, they're rather dwarfed. So this little competition goes on. And what happens is eventually these broadleaf vines kind of attach themselves to these thin trees. And as the thin te- trees grow, it kind of pulls up this huge, this huge like covering that eventually suffocates the rest of the plant life there. While that's happening, there is the hardwood tree that's fallen. And its seeds are starting to germinate. But its growth is different its growth goes down into the soil. A little bit like the tortoise and the hare, its growth is slow and steady. Eventually it grows 10, 20 feet, and it takes its place and beats all the other plant life, it takes its place at the top of this canopy where birds uh, habit and, and uh, where plant life, well, I guess there's no plant life up there, but where there's great vegetation and, and uh, strength for, for birds and stuff like that. And, and it, they grow to be you know a couple hundred feet tall and last for hundreds of years. The broadleaf, or the, the uh, um, hardwood tree, it, it wins the battle by doing something that's counterintuitive. As opposed to rushing to quick growth, its roots go deep into the soil. And it's there it gets the nutrients of water and, and soil and, and uh, uh, um, uh, life from there. And I think it's a good metaphor for the spiritual life. Instead of being a people who are active and busy, we need to be a people who are Jesus' people who are deeply formed. And as we're sinking our roots into the soil of God, what it does is it allows us to be evergreen. It allows us to have abundance. It allows us to be full of life. A spiritual leader that I've read over the years, Richard Foster, he says, The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or a greater number of gifted people, but for a deep people. We're gonna begin a series for the next few weeks, and it's titled, Called Out, What the Church Is. This idea of being called out comes from a Greek word in the New Testament, ekklesia. And it means exactly that, to be called out. We're called out by God to be a certain kind of people for a very specific purpose. The writers in the New Testament echo this over and over. In Peter it says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, A people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're called to be a certain kind of people. We're called to do a certain kind of thing. We're called out of the gospel of self and self-reliance, and we're called into the gospel of grace. And it's there that we find identity, we find our meaning, and we find purpose. Now, foundational to that calling is the invitation to, to avoid just quick growth, speedy growth. It's not about just believing the right things or doing Christian-like things, but it's, it's being deeply formed and becoming Jesus' apprentices. I think of this last year, and I think of some of the things that have happened. There's been tremendous amount of struggles, right? Great adaptations that people have had to make. Grieving and lossing. There's been so many things hitting us, and I'm afraid that it might have habituated us in some very un Jesus like ways. I'm concerned for us as a church. I'm concerned for me. Have I been more shaped by Netflix, by convenience, by isolation, by politics, or even by fear? (laughs) Have you been? The next few weeks, what we want to do is we want to make sure that we're making the main thing the main thing. A Jesus apprentice is the way we've kind of been encouraging our people as a church is around 640 discipleship. If you've heard that phrase, if you've been around us, it comes from a verse in Luke 640 that says, When a student has been fully developed, they will look like the master. They will look like their teacher. We believe looking like the master is around three basic kind of loves. It's loving God as our ultimate love. It's loving one another, right? The Bible says they will know we are Christians by our, our love, right? And then it's loving our neighbors. If this church burned down and we didn't have it anymore, would our neighbors feel any lack of love? Would they feel any lack of loss? Other than those of us who go here, would they miss us in any significant way? You guys, this is what it means to be embodied. This kind of gospel calling that we've called been called out to be, and to do. So I just want to start by just praying together a little bit and inviting God through his spirit to kind of speak through us through our time. So would you just pray with me? Father, we want to orient ourselves in a certain way today. First of all, we come confessing. I come confessing. I know a lot of those things have probably shaped me over the year. Father, would you help to make us the main thing the main thing? Would you root us in deep into your soil, God? Father, today would you give us ears to hear and would you give us eyes to see. In Jesus' name, amen. Apprenticeship of Jesus kind of begins with this idea of loving God. But it's somewhat counterintuitive because instead of trying to summon up this deep affection for God, what we need to do is recognize the desperate condition of our souls. We first need to be found. We first need to receive from God. One of the New Testament writers says this, we love God, we love him because he first loved us. And the principle here is simple. God makes the first move. He comes to us. The Bible talks about the deadness in us and this desperate condition that can inhibit us from becoming fully alive as humans, as God has expected us and designed us and created us to be. That it's when we encounter this kind of unique love that we really come to what our true identity is. We love him and we receive him because he first received us. A spiritual director that I've enjoyed reading over the years describes this as receiving God's loving gaze. Listen to what he says. The gaze of God receives us exactly as we are, without judgment or distortion, subtraction or addition. Such perfect receiving is what transforms us. Being totally received as we truly are is what we wait and long for all our lives. All we can do is receive and then return the loving gaze of God every day. And afterwards, we will be internally free and deeply happy at the same time. First, we need to receive the loving gaze of God, but to receive it just as we are. There's a thing called our false self, and that can kind of get in the way of us receiving this kind of love. Our false self is that part of us that thinks we're lovable for some reason, either our job or our title or our position or even our personal image. It's largely... Just a construction of our mind and our attachments. It's what we think makes us worthy as a person. But it's also a phantom, right? Because it's conditional. It's ever-changing. The premise of the Bible is God loves you just as you are. But the first step is this kind of um, realizing that we need to kind of die to ourselves. That false self needs to be killed, so to speak, so that we can receive the the real love of God, the only love that will really change and transforms us. This is a form of dying to self. It's a form of shedding that false self and receiving the perfect love of God. And why is it perfect? It's perfect because it's covenantial. It's got, it's got some, some roots to it. It's being loved perfectly because it loves us when we're at our worst, when we're grumpy or rebellious, when we're disrespectful and even when we're incapable of loving God back, that God's love is with us, it's for us, and it's unto us. God's love will change us into becoming our true self, who we objectively were designed to be by our creator from the very beginning. That's the roots. We need to sink our roots into that kind of soil, into that kind of deep love. And as we receive the loving gaze of God, then we're commanded to do something in that moment. If, if you know of the prayer that Jesus prayed in John 16, he prays this, I have loved you just as my Father has loved me. And then here's the command, stay in that love, remain in that love, set up your abode in that love. As we receive the loving gaze of God, we need to return to that over and over and again to that specific Reality And it's in staying inside that loving gaze that has the capacity to change and transform us. I don't know if you've ever seen a parent take a picture of their little baby or their infant. Right, what do they do? They give this big smile. Hey, you know, they say something kind of light. What are they doing? They're extending a loving gaze to the child or to the baby. And the hope is that the baby sees that, that joyful expression of delight. And what? That they in turn will respond back in like fashion. And what Jesus is saying is that we not only need to receive the loving gaze of God, but we need to stay here. And it's in staying that we return that loving gaze back to God. Because staying in that love, it roots us in our true selves. It's who we were designed to be from God. And since God is always moving towards us in love, he wants us to receive that kind of loving gaze and remain, remain there. that's not always easy to do, right? There's so many things that kind of get in the way of doing that. Um, We can be active in some specific ways. How do we respond in returning this loving gaze back to God? And that's where I want to just kind of spend a bulk of our time, just talking about how do we then remain there and return that loving gaze back to God? To love God, we first must reorder our desires. We must reorder our desires, and this is something that we can actually apply effort to. The things that we love have the capacity to form us and affect us in a very specific way. One author, James Smith, he says this, you are what you love. Have you ever thought about that? You are what you love. What he's saying is that what we choose to love has the capacity to form and even shape our identity. Pastor Erwin McManus in uh, Southern California, he says this, Our identities are formed through the sphere of those who matter the most to us. The things that matter the most to us and the people that matter the most to us have a capacity to shape us in a very deep way, at a very deep level. Loving something or loving someone is by beginning to direct our wants and our longings and our desires. They become the core of our identity the wellspring from which all of our actions flow up. There's a verse in Proverbs that kind of echoes that same idea. It says, above all else, above everything else you do, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. For from our heart, all of our actions flow. So we have to be really careful about what we choose to direct our loves toward. You can think of it a little bit like... um, kind of curating your heart intentionally around the kinds of things that you give yourself to, that you give your heart to. And that's what we mean when we say you're going to love God with your heart. Most of the time, we don't really think about what we love, right? It just kind of operates under the hood of our conscious minds. A lot of Christian formation has been uh, built around this idea that we need to focus and fill our minds with more knowledge, more understanding. We can easily assume that being a follower of Jesus is a learner who just needs to acquire more information, just get more knowledge. But I would suggest to you that our mind does play a specific role in loving God, but it begins by directing our affections toward God. We really don't think our way into being like Jesus. How many of you have ever experienced that thing where there's a gap between what you know and what you do, right? It's not that we know in order to love. It's the other way around. We love in order to know. And Paul, in in, uh, his letter to the Church of Philippi, he echoes that same kind of idea. He says this, I pray that your love, okay, there's the word, will grow more and more. I pray that you have a better understanding and be wise in all things. I pray that you will know what is the very best. I pray that you will be true and without blame until the day Christ comes again. At first glance, you can see that and think, oh, he's talking about what you know. But if you look at the order, what does he start with? I pray that your love, that we would grow in love. Love, therefore, it becomes the condition for knowing. Therefore, we have to start by attending to the things that we love. Each of us, we have this internal compass that is always looking for something, something to desire, something to love, something to direct our desires toward. Today, the truth is, you're going to love something. You're going to worship something. It could be your job. It could be your leisure activities. It could be your family. It could even be others' opinions of you. The question is not, will you love something? But will you love what's best for your soul? right? Famous songwriter, Bruce Springsteen, everybody's got a hungry heart, right? We all have that internal mechanism that's longing for something. This this internal mechanism is always on the search for something we can desire and something that will shape us. The uh, theologian N.T. Wright says this, when human beings give their heartfelt allegiance to and worship that which is not God, they progressively cease to reflect the image of God. One of the primary laws of human life is that you become like what you worship. If you love money, if you desire it, you will start to define yourselves by it. You will start to see other people as creditors, as partners, or even as customers. If you worship or love sex, you will define yourself by your performance of it, by your proclivities and your appetites, maybe even by your past histories. If you love power, you will define yourself by how much power you can wield, how much power you can gain, and you'll start to treat others as pawns. And you can see how dehumanizing that is to us and to the people around us. The Bible also echoes this same kind of idea. The psalmist in Psalms 115, He's talking uh, about the idols that people would have in the ancient world. Idols that were constructed of hands. And look at what he says. Their idols are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths, but they can't speak. Eyes, but they can't see. Ears, but they can't hear. Noses, hands, and feet, but they can't walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throat. Then he says, those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. You see... When we worship things other than God, when we love other things ahead of him as our ultimate love, we start to become like them. They have a formational aspect and influence in our lives. And in doing so, what scripture says, is we start to become less and reflect less of the image of God. And what's tricky is this whole process kind of works at the subconscious level. It operates under the hood of our awareness. Those lesser loves... They kind of become default settings that we just naturally slip into without a whole lot of thought. They may not even be sin or something that is morally wrong, but they're just not things that were ever intended to be ultimate things, right? When we make those things our ultimate desire, they then replace God as our ultimate love. And those rivalries, they become destructive to us at a soul level. You might think of it a little bit like a beach ball in a pool. Have you ever played with a beach ball in a swimming pool? But it has a tendency. You would say even its greatest desire is what? To rise to the surface. It's restless when it's held underwater. And as you push it down, it tries to sneak its way back up through your feet or through your hands. You can think of your souls as a beach ball. That when they're being pushed downward toward lesser loves, they become restless and they want to seek their way back up to the surface. They want to go to the natural direction where they will be caused to be at rest. Augustine, great spiritual thinker, has a famous quote where he says, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. When our loves and our desires have been directed toward God, what he's saying is at that moment, we experience a deep soul rest. So, instead of directing our loves toward lesser things, we need to reorder our desires around what God says is truly the way for human flourishing. That involves the affections of our heart, but also something that we need to engage our mind and our wills and our strength towards. And by doing that, I would suggest that then we then rehabituate our disciplines. We rehabituate our disciplines. We move from reordering our desires to rehabituating. You see, if we are what we love, then our habits, they have a profound ability to reinforce that love. Learning to love God then means that we rehabituate around those kind of disciplines. And that process is less about, it's less about filling our minds with more information and more about Settling into what God has designed us for His creation. And I would say, probably one of the simplest ways to do that is what they've classically called the spiritual disciplines. The spiritual disciplines are a way for us to re-aim our loves, to retarget our loves. Love is a habit. And as our hearts become immersed in those spiritual practices and disciplines, that what happens is that over time they begin to index us toward a very specific end, and that end is the flourishing that comes from life in God's kingdom. Another way that our minds are engaged in this process comes out of Romans. You've probably heard the verse if you've been around church for a while. It says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Then it goes on to say, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I think the order is important there because, again, it begins with God's mercy, God's love being directed towards us. And as we respond to that love, what Paul is saying is then we have the opportunity to be transformed as our minds engage. And one of the ways that our mind engages is critically thinking about what we aim our loves towards. But our also can, mind can be used to help discern what kind of spiritual practices will reinforce that love. Those practices and rituals, Paul is saying, will help transform us. you guys see how a little bit how that works, how that flows? Our strength is involved as well in that process. As our minds kind of index themselves around certain practices that will habituate us toward loving God, God then allows our strength to be applied to, to, to strengthen that kind of effort. And what he does is he sends his Holy Spirit that kind of animates and adds strength and power, and that's through the Spirit that we experience the fruit of our love back toward God. Our practices then become multiplied and animated by this deep work of God's Spirit. As you lean into those spiritual practices, then what happens is you're training your loves, and that training deeply forms that love in your heart. Spiritual disciplines um, can be something that we experience individually and corporately. Spiritual disciplines would would be things like reading scripture, meditating on scripture, attending church, fasting, observing the Sabbath, and prayer. And so I wanna encourage you with this area of prayer. This is something that God has been doing in my heart, kind of growing me in, and so I just wanna share a little bit about that. I think if Christians were known for anything, we're known for prayer, right? Jesus said, my house will be a house of, it'll be a house of prayer. And something happens in prayer that also deeply forms us and reconnects us with God's love. One of the authors I read was Rick Vios, and he has this book called The Deeply Formed Life, and he says this, prayer forges humility, and it opens us up to the love of God, out of which we work for healing. In this respect, prayer is both formational and invitational. Prayer forms us into people marked by the fruit of the Spirit. In prayer, we invite God into the struggles of our life. Not only does prayer help connect us with God, but it also brings us back to full circle to who we are as people, To roots us in our identity. As I began the new year, 2021, uh, I was feeling like my prayer life was pretty stilted. It just had a lot of rope prayers. It didn't lack any kind of life. I kind of felt like convicted, like I was losing my connection with God in some way. So I went up to the top of Ammanam. I don't know if you guys have ever been to Ammanam these days, but you can go way up there and you get to whole see the whole city. It's gorgeous up there. And I just took a few minutes alone with God. I started praying. Lisa gave me a book on on praying the Psalms. The Psalms are these great prayers that have been chronicled for hundreds of years that really give rooty, hearty language to our prayers. And they can can become a prayer guide for us as we try to grow in our ability to pray because they're full of vulnerability. And so um, I started a program of reading my way through the Psalms. And what the guide suggested is that you would take the 150 Psalms and you would divide them in sections of 30. So like day one of the month, You read Psalms 1. Day 2, Psalms 2. I read Psalms 8 today. And then when you get to the end of the month, you start with 31 through 60. And then you get to the end of that month, and on and on it goes. You divide them up in sections of 30. And what I started finding happened for me is it gave life and vitality to my prayers with God. It opened up an opportunity to have really rich conversations. And I'll tell you a little bit of how I do it. All I do is, like, say I read a couple days ago um, Psalms 139. And that psalm begins with this. It says, you have searched me, and you know me, Lord. So I would read that, and then I'd simply just stop, and I'd offer a prayer back up to God. You know, Father, today, would you help me not to wear masks with you? Would you help me to be vulnerable and disclosive? Because you already know it all anyway. And then I would read the next line, and on and on I would go through that psalm. That's exactly how it looks. And I don't know for you what your prayer life is like But I know a lot of times we can lack the right kind of words. And I also know for many of you, you know, your busy lives, I started finding that I could do that on my drive to work. I would just put on, I like the message, that translation, and I would just put that on and pray it along as I heard it being read through my phone. It's just an easy way for us to to log on and to pray our way through Scripture and get a beautiful connection and get us back in touch with God's love for us as we invite him into the messy parts of our lives. Prayer is something we can do individually, but it's also something that we need to do corporately. I just affirm you guys for being here, because I think there's something unique when a a group of people meet, and when we specifically meet to pray, something unique happens. So what we're going to do is invite all of our campuses. Um, On September 2nd, if you want to circle that date, we want to have a corporate time of prayer. We're going to meet at 7 o'clock in the theater. And just cry out to God as a church community. Yes, we do it individually. But there's something I think that uniquely happens when we pray corporately. I think it animates and, and elevates and even amplifies a sense of God's presence. And it gives us a corporate voice. I'm encouraged when I lead worship and I look out and see you guys engaged. It, it draws that out from me. And as you hear, and hear the prayers and the worship of other people, there's something that it does deep encouraging us in that way. I'll tell you how this whole process just kind of naturally flows. Um, it was about my 30s, so just a couple of years ago, <laughs> I was in my 30s, and I realized um, I'd started developing a little bit of a dad bod, right? Nobody shaming here, okay? There was some squishy parts, and uh, my wife referred it to it as my fun layer. So I decided I needed to kind of, uh, kind of change that, and so I reordered my desires around what I knew would be better physical health. What had happened is I'd kind of um, ordered my loves around the high that I got from slamming down a Ben & Jerry's in one sitting. <laughs> you know you love it, you know you love it. <laughs> ben & Jerry's. So I decided that I was gonna start a running program. What did I do? I'd reorder my loves around better health and knowing that I needed that exercise, and then I rehabituated my disciplines around a specific plan that would help reinforce that love. So I came up with the idea that I would, I would start a running program where I would run one day, or uh, three days a week um, for 30 minutes, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So that was gonna require my strength, right? Because I needed to make sure I would stay with it and, and endure it. It also required the work of the Holy Spirit, which at that moment was Lisa kicking me out of bed at 6 a.m. in the morning. Get out and run, get out and run. And I'll be honest with you, the first day I did this running program, it was miserable. I mean, I walked a little bit, I ran a little bit, I felt Ben and Jerry's, no. After I finished my first week, I, I, didn't, I was debating whether I'd keep doing it because it just felt terrible. But I did it for a week, and then the next week, I think I did it a couple times, and on and on it went. Finally, something happened that after three months of doing it, I started enjoying it. I know it sounds crazy. I see you shaking your head it's like that can't be possible. Running. But I started to enjoy it. And this is where the process kind of comes full circle because it begins with reordering your um, desires, rehabituating your disciplines around those desires. But then it brings you to this beautiful place of renewing your delights. I enjoyed running. I love the high I get from getting out and doing physical exercise. I experience the better mental health that I got. I experience kind of losing some pounds. Reordering our desires, rehabituating our disciplines, and then renewing our delights. As we reorder our desires around the things that God deems are the good version of the life, where we, we experience flourishing, we we establish habits that we rehabituate our disciplines. Spiritual disciplines like going to church and prayer and meditation, these all work so beautifully to reinforce that for our spiritual lives. And then as we do these habits, as we do these practices, what it does is it renews our delights. We enjoy God and we're able to receive and respond back to Him a loving delight as well, a loving gaze back to God. It reinforces all of that process and it recreates this kind of never ending cycle of receiving God's love and responding to God's love and remaining in that. The whole process begins by receiving God's loving gaze. But I got to recognize that for many of us, many of you, sometimes it's a difficult thing to know and receive the fact that God loves you. I regularly go and visit um, inmates in prison. In Elmwood, <clears throat> in Elmwood, and I look across the table at them, and they just think, Mark, how I, I, don't, I don't think God could ever love me. I've done so many things. They feel like their lives are too unworthy, that they've messed up, that they're just misfits, or they're not important enough. I came across a story uh, Brennan Manning tells in Ragamuffin Gospel. He tells a story of a surgeon who just finished and completed a very intricate surgery by removing a tumor from a woman's face. And because of the surgery, he actually accidentally nicked one of the sensitive nerves and left her with like what he describes as like clown-like features, like a Bell's palsy. And as he's looking in on this kind of dimly lit room, he sees a husband standing over the wife who he just operated on. It's weighty, right? He's, he gets the feeling for, for the look that they have with each other. And as the woman looks up, she looks at the husband and she goes, is my face always going to be like this? Yeah, the husband says. And then in this silence, the husband just kind of smiles and he goes, I think you're cute. I think you're still cute. And what the surgeon sees next is the husband bend down towards his wife. And the surgeon looks away, realizing he's kind of become privy to something that's too intimate for him to watch. But then when he turns his eyes back, he sees the husband reshaping his lips to accommodate hers. And he sees this beautiful, loving embrace. My friends, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ that Jesus would twist himself into the shape of the cross to fit your deformities and my deformities, my failures and my rebellion. That's the movement of God towards us. Yes, even when we make mistakes, when we don't perform and act as we would like to, Jesus comes to us. He comes to you. He comes to me. He says, I want you. I want you. You are mine. I have purpose and plans for your life. Jesus knows our problems. He knows our addictions, our hang-ups, our habits. And in spite of all that, he still moves towards us. He still takes the step, first step, of moving towards us in love. And I have to believe in, in a room this size, some of you have never made the pivot to embrace God's love for you. Maybe you're like some of the prisoners I meet. You feel like you're unworthy. You've messed up too much. Can I just be the voice, a loving voice that reminds you, you are never beyond God's loving embrace and his loving gaze. Would you pray with me? Father, I don't want to try to construct some kind of manufactured emotional moment, but man, as I just think about the passion with which you love us as your people, God, I pray for the person in the room today, the sound of my voice, if they're watching online, that maybe feels like they're too far removed. They've made too many mistakes. They've stepped too far outside of where your love can reach them. God, I pray that you would powerfully work through your spirit reminding them and folding them that you love them passionately, that you are always moving towards them in love. You were always the initiator of a loving response. I pray for the person maybe who's walked with you for years, but now their love has cooled. God, would you help them to be aware mindfully of where they need to reorder some of their desires, some of the priorities that have kind of gotten out of whack, that haven't made you their ultimate desire. God, help us. Help us to rehabituate those disciplines in our life, the spiritual disciplines that can cause us and reinforce the habits that we need to, to strengthen our love for you. God, would you renew us then in the delight that we experience as we connect with you in this loving kind of responsive way, receiving your loving gaze and loving you back. And Father, would you help us to experience the deep rest of our souls? We ask this in Jesus' name.